I know some of you, like Andy mentioned, have been here a lot through the summer, and so you've seen kind of the whole series that we've gone through. Um, beginning of the summer, we passed out these, and uh, maybe some of you still have them. I don't know. <laughs> but basically, we've gone through it. We've gone through God, and we spent three weeks on God's character. Who is God? He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. Verses that have to deal with His justice, His righteousness. We spent three weeks on the character of man. Who is man? Who is woman? What are we? We are born in sin. We are sinners by choice, by nature, by practice. That's an offense against the holy God. It's not just the fact that we're sinners. It's the fact in light of that that there's a God who created us and we've shaken our fist at Him and rebelled against Him. And as you know and have learned, there are serious consequences for that rebellion. If God is holy and just, then He must punish. And His punishment is perfectly just. And because we've rebelled against a perfect and holy God, the only punishment and righteous judgment is hell. And so we talked about that. We talked about what is the judgment. Finally, we moved into the atonement, substitution, propitiation. All those words. Remember talking about those great, great things? beautiful, beautiful doctrines, only beautiful because they point us to Christ, because they help us see and understand what's really going on. Well, that leads us to where we are now. We round a corner, and finally we get to our role in it. What does this have to do with you, me, and everybody else? So if you still have one of these sheets, uh, finish filling it out. And if you stole mine, please give it back, because I can't find it. But if you still have one, uh, we've just been writing verses in there every week and trying to memorize those verses. Scripture memorization is a a tremendous discipline and a really good thing. One of the most compelling and difficult things as we sort through the logistics and just as we read the Bible is sorting out and trying to figure out God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Anybody ever wrestled with that? Huh? I mean, that... You really start thinking about that, and they'll send you into spells, keep you up at night. Beautiful thing to think about. But it's not something that we have to perfectly reconcile. It's not something that we need to know everything about, but we certainly do need to know what the Scriptures have to say about it. Sproul has called it an antinomy, an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. I don't know exactly how that works. What I know is that the Bible says that it's true. It doesn't dismiss our role in studying and looking into it and loving it and appreciating it. But it does mean that we can't perfectly reconcile that. When asked to try and explain human responsibility and God's sovereignty, Spurgeon replied, I can't reconcile or I won't try to reconcile friends. These aren't two apparently, these aren't contradictory things. They come together. These truths are friends. They go together well. Friends cannot go to battle with each other. The work of salvation in a person's life is purely, purely a work of grace. No question about it. God awakens. God draws. God saves. The Bible even calls repentance a gift. Acts 11.18, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Jesus tells us in John 6.44 that no one's coming to the Father unless the Father draws him. Second Timothy 2.25 says this, With gentleness, what? To correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may 
Grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Yet strictly, even alongside these truths, these deep things of God's sovereignty, the Bible tells us adamantly and repeatedly that we are responsible in the matter. It tells us repeatedly to repent and believe the gospel. And I've studied repentance on and off, but I had no idea until I've dug into it these last couple weeks how often this is brought up in the Bible. Let me give you some examples of how it tells you and I to repent. Luke 13.3 No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Revelation 3.3 Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And one I came across this week that's been especially wonderful for me to think about is Ezekiel 18.30-32. God says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Listen, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Over and over again, this passage, you, you, you. Many of you are familiar with Ezekiel 16 and then again in 36 where he says, I will put my spirit within you. And I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey all of my ways. Here he says this, Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. I won't pretend to try and explain all these things tonight, and I don't think that's really the point tonight, but I wanted to touch on those things. But before I go any further, I want to pray. So let's pray together. Would you bow your heads? Lord, help me not to just rush into anything. As we talk about these great things, Lord, help us to to meditate, to think, to believe these things. Oh, Lord, I beg that these things would change our lives tonight. As we grow to understand repentance better and what it means and how it affects us and how we teach the gospel and how we preach your word and how we love one another and how we repent of personal sin, would you... Cause us to leave here understanding these things better and in doing so act more like Christ, be more like Him. Grant me Your grace now as I work to articulate these things, Lord. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. Thank You for calling us to repentance. Thank You for also commanding us to repent, Lord. We pray this in the precious name of Christ together. Amen. Well, I've made handouts because I've been told before, and uh, I'm not surprised. Parker, would you help me hand these out? And uh, Nathan, would you want to hand those out to that side? You can give me one of those two, Parker. Thank you. I've been told before, and it's not hard to believe that I'm a little bit tough to follow as I go through things, and so I'm hoping that this will help. And I say this every time I hand something out, and I do this often, but don't just read through the whole thing. Listen to what I'm about to say. And by the grace of God, follow me with it as you go. Hopefully this will help outline a a couple of things. You'll see the title at the top. The title at the top says, A Survey of and a Call to Repentance. 
this is a topical lesson, and it's impossible. It's impossible for us to spend all summer and cover repentance. It's impossible for me to get to it all tonight. So this is a survey of repentance. What is repentance? This is all a call, also a call to personal repentance. What does repentance look like? What is repentance in your life? What is repentance in the life of an unbeliever? What does repentance look like in the life of a believer? A survey of and a call to repentance. Before we talk more thoroughly about what repentance is, I think it's only proper that we should define it. The Greek word for repentance is metanoma. Metanoma. It comes from meta, which means after. And neome. I can never pronounce this one. No eo. No eo, I think it is. To understand. Literally, it means an afterthought or a change of mind. I meant to ask you about that, Andy, before I started. Metanoma, an afterthought or a change of mind, but biblically its meaning doesn't stop there. Uh, Kittle and Friedrich, two, men's, two men here, composed a set of ten volumes. It's one of the most, probably the most scholarly and uh, reputable resource on Greek in the New Testament. It's called the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Now listen to what these men write. They define it far better than I ever would. It is seldom a function, talking about repentance here, it is seldom a function of the intellect alone. It is a change of mind in an emotional and volitional sense as well. They use two synonyms for this word. The synonyms are one, to be converted, and two, to change. The section closes like this. Metnoma is is a totality, and its surrender is consequently a total surrender. This is repentance and a real change of the chemistry of the brain, a functional way we think. This changes everything. Often we try and separate and part and parcel out parts of our body, our intellect, or our heart. We can't do this. This changes the way we think, the way we are, the way we act. Remember how I was talking a few weeks ago about how when you really change your mind about something, when you really come to grasps with something, it can't help but change the way you act, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you live. This is a change of mind. Biblically defined, this is a change of mind. But this is a change of mind that affects everything. Just like a real change of mind, a genuine change of mind. The point here is this. A true change of heart cannot help but change the flesh. It can't help but flesh itself out in your life. Acts 14.15 Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring to you good news that you should... Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Turn. Turn. So many times in the Bible we don't see the word repent. We see the concept or the practice of repentance. Turn from these vain things. Here we go. Repentance is a conversion of the mind and thought manifesting itself in a life of turning away from rebellion, turning from rebellion and turning to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul says this, For they themselves report concerning to us, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. This is repentance. Tonight, it won't do us much good just to explain to you the way God has masterfully worked this out in your life if He's redeemed you. That won't be my job. It will be mainly, it will be mainly to exhort you to take part in this plan of repentance. 
or else perish, or else be damned. The Bible is clear on this. Acts 8.22 says, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. God tells you to make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Now that we've defined it, let's explore it a little bit further. You see there, I've given you five points. Five points I want to go over. One, repentance is essential for salvation. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's been a large debate in what is commonly called or broadly called evangelical Christianity of whether or not repentance is necessary for salvation, what repentance is and whether or not it's necessary for a person to be saved. And uh, the, the controversy has taken many names and it's not a new thing. But the controversy has been this, is, is salvation necessary for, or excuse me, is repentance necessary for salvation or does it take place after salvation? And I'm of the opinion it's both. Repentance is absolutely necessary, essential for salvation, but it doesn't just stop at the moment of conversion. Repentance is an ongoing life thing. You repent once unto salvation and God continues in you a spirit of repentance. Acts 3, 19, Therefore repent and return so that your sin may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You just can't divorce repentance from salvation so that your sins may be wiped away. Why should you repent? So that your sins might be wiped away. Repentance is not a suggestion, brothers and sisters. God doesn't say, if you'd like, repent. He says, repent or perish. Repentance is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's an essential aspect of the gospel. That's why we're spending a night on it. We only have so many weeks in this summer. But if repentance is absolutely necessary, then what do we do with faith? Point two, repentance and faith are inseparable. They are not mutually exclusive. You have to have repentance and faith together. Acts 20, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are not divorced from one another. We see repentance towards God, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1.15, you guys know this. Christ bursts on the scene, first words out of his mouth. I love this. John's been preparing the way, and Jesus comes on the scene preaching a similar thing. The time is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is nigh. Repent and believe the good news. We see these things linked together so often in Scripture. It's been said that they're different sides of the same coin. There's different sides of the same coin. Acts 20, 21. A testifying of God, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not my job, nor probably yours, to explain which came first. The chicken or the egg, repentance or faith, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that it necessarily matters a whole lot. I think we have to have faith to be able to repent. But I think you you have to have repentance to have faith. There's aspect, they're so closely entwined that we just can't separate them. They're different sides of the same coin. Matthew twenty-one thirty-two. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. 
So there's a change your mind again. There's repentance. Change your mind and believe Him. These are so closely linked that you can't skip them. Repentance and faith are inseparable. But biblically, how does repentance look? This brings us to point three. Repentance is accompanied by sorrow and humility. Job 42, God addresses Job, puts him in his place, and finally Job says this, Therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job mourns over his sin. He mourns over his offense against the Lord. Second Chronicles uh, 7.14 says this. I love this. Many of you know this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people will humble themselves, humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, Psalm 38.18 says this, For I confess my iniquity and I am full of anxiety because of my sin. The psalmist says, Because of my sin, I am anxious in my soul. The Hebrew word there means the, the idea of crucifying the soul. My soul is crucified because of my sin. I want to repent. I want to confess. I want to get this off. I'm miserable. I am humble. I am anxious because of my sin. True repentance brings about humility and humility brings about true repentance. David compared it to his bones being broken, his bones being eaten inside of him. We have largely done, listen, we've largely done away with the seriousness of this by somehow feeling the need, the created need to instantly affirm people or somehow tell people that all they have to do is raise their hand. They'll instantly take away any sorrow or guilt. No, friends, true sorrow, godly sorrow is a gift because as we're about to talk about, that leads to repentance and unto salvation without regret. For a season, sorrow is healthy. It's a good thing. It can only be removed in its proper time by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. That's why James writes in James 4, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, Be wretched, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. What a passage to preach on, huh? I'd love to hear someone preach on that because that's just not a... No one wants to sit and talk about gloom. We're in a culture, especially now. Listen, Americans spend the least amount of money all over the world on the essentials, on food, on clothing, on housing. What does that mean? It means that we have more money left over for recreation. And we are in an age where you can occupy yourself with anything. You want to be distracted? Go buy a new toy. You want to take your mind off of God? Go buy a new game. There is thousands, there's millions of distractions out there. This is such a confusing verse to me for the longest time. I thought, why would I want to weep and wail and mourn? Why would I want my laughter to be turned to mourning, my joy to gloom, humble myself before the Lord? James here speaking to unbelievers. Just humble yourself before the Lord. Our soul, our soul, our mind, our body, it should be downcast without Christ, who's our true joy. So all other joy, all other fun is just temporary and it's deceptive. That's the most common question anymore. Are you having fun? Whatever you're doing, is it 
I don't care if it's carnal or whatever. People just, are you having fun doing it? Because if it feels good, it must be right. Wrong. So easy to get distracted in this time, in this day, where there's so many things we can do and say instead of humbling ourselves before the Lord. Have you ever known someone that's getting to the age, oh, say your age, my age, one of our peers who's needing really to take life seriously. We always ought to be taking life seriously, but they're coming to times and points in their life where they really need to begin to come to terms. They're going to have to work a job. You're going to have to buck up. They're coming to a point where they can't live off their parents' paycheck. They begin to make money, and it's time to seriously think about the things of life, even the things of eternity. What often happens at that crucial juncture? Buy another toy so I can stop thinking about the seriousness of life. I see that so often. Just cleaned out a guy's house last week, just full of just toys. Because he'd been confronted on the things of the Lord, but it was so much easier to, to think about everything else than to humble himself before the Lord. James says, when you realize you're outside of Christ and your sin has found you out, you ought to weep, you ought to mourn, you ought to be sorry. Luke 18. Why don't you grab your Bibles? Go to Luke 18 with me. Christ is such an illustrator. He's such a, such a teacher. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. And start with me in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Did you catch that? These are people who don't think they need to repent. Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood, and while he was praying this to himself said, God, thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector says he's standing some ways off, some distance away, and he is unwilling even to lift his eyes up to heaven, but he is beating his breast. And he's saying, God, be merciful. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, friends, humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself. If you're outside of Christ, let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. You have no joy but in Christ. You have no true joy but in Christ. Jeremiah 31.19 says this, For after I had turned away, this is Jeremiah talking, he says, After I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh, I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Do you see the awareness that sin brings about? And when we really truly see sin for what it is, it brings about a godly sorrow, mourning over that sin. There's a time to mourn over these things especially if you're outside of Christ. There's a false sorrow, however, that we must watch and must be careful. I was reading a a Puritan, Thomas Watson, in his book on repentance, and he says this. Listen, the language can get kind of tough, but I think the concept here is really important, so pay attention closely. It says, A man had gone 
A man has gone on long in sin. At last God arrests him, showing him what desperate hazard he has run, and he is filled with anguish. Within a while, the tempest of conscience is blown over and he is quiet. It says, then he concludes that he is true, a true penitent because he has felt some bitterness and sin. Do not be deceived. This is not repentance. Ahab and Judas had some trouble of mind. It is one thing to be a terrified sinner and another to be a repentant sinner. Sense of guilt is enough to breed terror. Infusion of grace breeds repentance. If pain and trouble were sufficient to repentance, then the damned in hell would be most penitent, for they are most in anguish. Repentance depends upon a change of heart. There there may be terror, yet no change of heart. And I can see this. Just just thinking this as I read this, I can see this in my own life. When I got to college, I had a worldly sorrow about my sin. There was times I would go for seasons and just deep carnality, and it would catch up with me, and I'd go, I need to do something about this. And I'd go, and I'd, remember one morning, cracking open all my beer and pouring it out. This worldly sorrow, I'm going to get caught. I'm going to get an MIP one of these days. I'm going to get kicked off the team. I'm going to, I'm going to. My sin wasn't towards, my sorrow wasn't from God. It was a sorrow that was according to the world. 1 Kings 21-27 says this, When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his flesh, and he fasted and lay in his sackcloth, and he went about dejectedly. So we see even the outward signs aren't necessarily a true teller of repentance. How do we tell if repentance is genuine? How am I supposed to know? Well, time tells. (laughs) I don't know of any other true test but time. I've seen people weep apparently over their sin when the gospel is preached and then just be as hard as a rock a week later. The question is, are we, are we just evading guilt? Are we trying to shy away from guilt or are we truly mortifying our sin? There's a difference between false repentance, though. Be careful. I, I feel like this is worth mentioning. There's a difference between a false repentance and a slow repentance. Not everyone's repentance will look the same especially a conversion. Not everyone will have the same repentance. We can't expect a 30-year-old repentance or a 40-year-old repentance from a new believer, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but in my own life, things took time. God convicted me of sin again and again. I began to repent of individual things. I can't expect, I can't force someone on someone, especially a new convert, a more mature repentance. That makes sense? There's a difference between a false repentance and a slow repentance. But there will be market. There will be some repentance. There will be some evidence of fruit. But what are the effects of resisting repentance or of false repentance? This takes us to number three, the damning effects of rebellion and resistance. Luke 13.3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I don't like... <laughs> I don't like harping on these things, and I don't, but I, I just, this is the word. I don't know that I've ever, as I developed a lesson, put so few of my thoughts in here and just tried to, just verse after verse, because it's so, there's so many places that talk about repentance. But this is one of the areas that just leapt from Scripture to me. The wicked are resistant to repentance. Jeremiah 8, 6 explains. I want you to turn to Revelation with me. It's a little bit after Genesis, before Jude. 
Last book of the Bible, Revelation. Not Revelations, Revelation. Go to chapter 16 with me. We see something incredible here. Look at verse 9. Actually, go back up to verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. So we see the judgments here of God, and this is the fourth bowl that's been poured out. Look at what this says. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they repented. That's not what it says, is it? It says they were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of the Lord who has power over the plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. What an odd thing. What a strange thing. Turn with me to chapter 2 of the same book. And look at verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Christ warns, repent. Now look at verse 16 of the same chapter. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Such strong words. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality, specifically their sexual immorality. I gave her time, Christ says, but she did not repent. Look over at chapter 3, verse 3. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I am coming like a thief, and you will not know at what time or hour I come to you. Revelation, the whole Bible really has so much to say about these things. The effects of rebellion against the call of repentance are so so quick. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, but He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. This brings us to 2 Corinthians 7.10. We face a turning point that says, For the sorrow that is according to... The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So we see two kinds of sorrow here, one from God and one from the world. That means there's a true and a healthy sorrow, a good sorrow. The reward of real and genuine repentance is this, point four, the fruits of the gift. Matthew 3.8, therefore bear fruit, show your repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. First is this, refreshment. Acts 3.19, Therefore repent in the, and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Any of you know what this is like? Any of you believers? Oh, I'm talking to both tonight, but repent of your sin and just the weight is lifted. Cling to the promise of 1 John 9 and 10, 1, 9 and 10. For faithful to confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's this time of refreshing that comes as we're faithful to cast our sin upon the in front of the cross and we trust and we know the faithfulness of our Lord to forgive. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, one of my favorite couple verses in the whole Bible says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked, who's the wicked? Who's the wicked? Really? Us. Us. Anyone. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion 
on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. I love how the Lord inspires that in there, that adjective. He will abundantly pardon. He just won't look past your sins. He won't just cast his eyes over them. No, he's, the price has been paid. We've covered that. Atonement's been made. He will abundantly pardon. It's not like some of us do when we're in an argument and we get heated and we'd, we'd say, well, remember when you did this? No. It's not like that with the Lord. This is a cast him behind his back. As far as the east is from the west, he will abundantly pardon. Look at this verse. This has always caught my attention. Luke 15, 7, verse 7 and verse 10. It says, Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. Joy in heaven. Joy in heaven. And we've seen, I've just seen that verse taken and shred apart. Somebody raised their hand. Joy in heaven. No, but true repentance, when somebody turns to the Lord in humility and faith and repentance, it says there is joy in heaven. Verse 10 says this, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What a thing. What, what, I mean, I don't know what heaven's like, and really neither do you. I think there's a reason God tells us certain things, but doesn't tell us many things. And this is something else. I mean, this is something He does tell us. To think that the angels rejoiced when I repented and turned to Christ for the first time. What a thought, huh? Wow. Acts 26.20 Then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region, this is talking about being declared the gospel throughout all the region of Judea and also to Gentiles. What was declared to them? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What happens in true repentance? What manifests itself in true repentance? Remember, it's a true change, a conversion of the mind that results, that fleshes itself out, that manifests it in turning from sin and turning towards God. This leads us to our last point, urgency of the command. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found and call upon Him when He is near. I, I, I just think, man, anytime any of us preach the Gospel or teach the gospel, or have an opportunity, and we don't do it with urgency, we missed it. I know I've missed it before. As I read through the Scriptures, and as I look at repentance, and as I look at how Christ and Paul and Peter and the apostles taught, Mark 6.12 talks about how the apostles went out, the disciples went out, and they taught repentance. We don't teach it with urgency. We miss it. We just miss it. You read some of those old preachers or, or... some of the newer ones that you can listen to, but some of those old ones, you, meet, you read the manuscript and there's an urgency in their call with the gospel. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Repentance is no more a suggestion than love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not a suggestion. It's a command and we do it with urgency. With great zeal, with urgency. Today. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, 4, he says, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I listened to tell you now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You just don't know, do you? You just don't. Last time I was up here I talked about a death that had happened recently. You know what happened since I got up here again? Another young man, even our age. 
Today, I tell you, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. As we go over the gospel, as we help equip ourselves to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to love our friends by teaching them the truth, we do it with urgency. Yes, God will bring them in at His time. Amen and amen. And that may look like weeks that you're consistent and fervent in prayer. That may look like years or months or a lifetime. But we do it with urgency because we just don't know. We just don't know. Solomon warns, Proverbs 27.1, don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know if there's going to be a tomorrow. Hebrews 3 Verses 7 and 8, taken from Psalms 51, the author says here, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they harden their hearts. You know what this makes me think of is when I was in elementary. I wasn't even a believer, but I was raised in the church like many of you, and I was sitting at, I think maybe it was middle school. I was middle school, sitting in, at a table in the library in a study hall with my friend. And we were talking about the things of the Lord. And I said, when it, this wasn't my verbiage, but here's the concept. When are you going to get right with the Lord? When are you going to turn? I was talking to my buddy. I don't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was talking about. I wasn't right with the Lord. <laughs> I was asking him, when are you going to do this? And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, uh, he said, I think I'll do it after after middle school, no. Probably after high school and I have some fun. No. You know, when I get to college and I've lived a little bit, after that, no, I think, you know what, after I'm married and settled down a little bit, and guess where he is? He's still walking this green earth by the grace of God, but he's married and settled down. I see no fruit of repentance in his life. This isn't something you put off. You don't, and you know, as I teach the gospel, so often I hear people say, as you talk to them, a non-believer, they say, "Well, I, I just got to get these things right. I just gotta, I just gotta put off drinking. I just gotta, I gotta break up with this girl. No, I just gotta do these different things first. No, turn to Christ today. And the regeneration fleshes itself out in repentance, and those things go away with time. We don't fix our life and then turn to Christ. No, today, now is the time of God's favor." Humble yourselves and turn to God. Conclusion. These are Christ's first and last words. Did you know that? Repentance. Mark 1.15, Matthew 4.7. From that time, Jesus began to preach and He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now the Great Commission. You think of Matthew 28, and it is there, but it's also in Luke 24.47. He says this. Jesus says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. What a commission. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed throughout all the earth, starting in Jerusalem. Preaches on Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.47 says, uh, or 37 says, they were cut to the quick or they were pierced to the heart. They knew their sin. They'd seen their sin. They say, what do we do? See, an unrepentant sinner is self-satisfied. He's proud. He's, he's haughty. He resists God. What's James says, say God do? God resists the proud. He stiff-arms the proud. 
James 4, 6, he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What does he do with the humble? He gives him grace. Psalms 34, 18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near them and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. What a Lord we serve. What a, what a God this is. That he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he says, those who are crushed in spirit, I am near. I am near to the faint-hearted. It's so different than we would think, isn't it? Proudly boasts and go up to God. He says, I want none of that. But in humility, turn to God. In repentance, turn to God. Psalm 51, 7, after David sins with Bathsheba, he says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. What does God want? Not your bulls, not your lambs, not your goat. He wants a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit. He will no wise cast out. Turn to God. Humble repentance, faith. Those are the kinds of sacrifices He wants. Isaiah 57, 15. Stay with me as we close up here. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places. And also, whoa, I dwell in the high and holy places. He dwells in unapproachable light. God is entirely other. He is different. He is, he is not like the created being. Heard an analogy once, who is more like God, the fungus between your toes or the high archangel? The answer is neither. God is different. He's other. He's separate. He dwells in the high and unapproachable places, but it doesn't stop there. Also with him who is contrite, and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a wonderful promise. What do you do? Humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. Turn to Him in childlike faith and repentance. That's what we tell folks, and that's what I tell some of you tonight who are outside of Christ. Turn to Him in Christ-like humility and childlike faith. If you've repented, if you've been repentant before, if you've repented, If you've been saved from God's wrath and from the power of sin, rejoice and keep on rejoicing and keep on repenting. Is there a holy hatred, anger, indignation in you when you sin? Do you hate sin? Or do you love the thought of it? Now, if you have not repented, if you have not turned to Christ, weep and mourn. Let your joy turn to, to gloom and your laughter to mourning because you have not Christ and He has not you. But he says this, humble yourself before him. Turn. Those are the sacrifices. And he dwells with those who are lowly in spirit and the contrite of heart. Humble yourself. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? You know what Paul is saying here? What are you doing? You're presuming on the Lord. You're waiting because he's patient, because he's suffered long over you, because he hasn't cut you off. He says, don't do it. He says, don't do it. He says, the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. To lead you to repentance. That's a, that's a quick survey, and that's, a, that's just a lot of verses, but God may it sink in. As we preach the gospel, we preach it with repentance. We call people to repentance. This is such an unpopular thing today. It's such an old-fashioned word. Repentance. It's almost barbed in our culture. But it's such a good thing if we could only see the fruit of repentance. A true joy and a 
and unity with Christ because of what He's done. A changing of the mind, a gift of grace. What a beautiful thing. I want to give you guys some time to think on that. There's questions there on that sheet I've given you. Question one, is your gospel one that includes repentance? As you talk about gospel, so often I hear people say, yeah, I I taught the gospel today. But does your gospel include repentance? And I don't, you know what, if you don't even use the word repentance, are you talking about turning away from your sin, turning towards Christ, a changing of the mind of that person? Have they repented and turned to Christ? Two, are you expecting a perfect repentance? I hope not. I hope not out of yourself and I hope not out of a new convert. You can be so brash with, with young believers sometimes expecting a perfect repentance out of them. Time. Time. Question three, are you evading guilt or are you mortifying sin? Question four, is there sin you're clinging to that you must repent of? And then a list there, worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. Go down through that list. I'll give you guys a little bit of time here. Let's pray together and then meditate on these things. Father, thank you. I just thank you. Thank you for the gift of repentance. You have granted repentance also to the Gentiles, us here. Not just your chosen people, Israel, but you've also granted it to us, Lord. Thank you that it's it's a gracious gift from you that you've allowed us to repent, that you've changed our mind and our heart and that that we now bear fruit not to repent, but because of repentance. Oh Lord, thank you that you've given me faith and repentance and many here. Lord, I pray for those that you haven't, that you'd open their eyes to the truth, that you'd cause them to repent and believe. Pray that you'd cause them to examine themselves well, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your gift. Help us to understand these things, Lord. Help us to to walk away knowing and applying these things, loving people well by preaching this with all grace and diligence and power. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.